Now, the English knew that their population was so much less. Population of France during this period, about 16 million. Population of England, three, maybe four. And, of course, much reduced after Black Death. So you need technology to make up for your shortage of numbers. And technology in this case was the longbow. Now, the longbow was England's weapon of mass destruction, consistently ignored by England's enemies, who are therefore consistently slaughtered by it. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webcarter and I'm the editor and your host. Now today I have a treat for those listeners who love the rivalry between England and France. That rivalry lives on to this day, but mainly on the rugby and football pitches. But in this episode, great friend of the show, Gordon Corrigan, the major, is going to talk about when that rivalry was a little bit more heated. Yep, that's right, it's the Hundred Years' War and the first part where we focus on the battles of Sluice and the big one, Cressy. Gordon's latest book, Cressy, is out now, and when he has his next two, Poitiers and Agincourt, I'm going to get him back for parts two and three of the Hundred Years' War. He's also agreed to come on to chat about the Battle of Waterloo at the anniversary in June, so there's plenty of French-based content on this pod. I absolutely love France and its noble people. So for those listeners who think this is mindless French bashing, you couldn't be more wrong. That's not to say there won't be a little harmless piss-taking, but that's what the rivalry is all about. Now, I come at it with plenty of Irish blood mixed in with my English, so I'm a little bit more laissez-faire about our friends across the English Channel, or La Manche, as they like to call it. But Gordon, well, he needs no introduction, and I find him a hugely entertaining guest, so I hope you do too. Coming up, if you like Napoleon, I'm talking with Adam Zamoyski about his invasion of Russia in 1812. I've got top 10 Tudor myths with Stephen Verapen. And Sir Christopher Clarke and I talk 1848, the year of revolution. Now, some of you might not be familiar, but it's fascinating and in many ways formed the world we in the West live in today. Please do subscribe and rate and review if you can. But in the meantime, I'll hand you over to Gordon Corrigan and Cressy. Gordon Corrigan. Welcome back to the podcast. You're a very good friend of the show. And you were, last time you were on Tipping Points in History, we talked about three key battles. But now you're here to talk about, again, you're going to, this is the first of a three parter I'm going to have you on talking about three battles based around your ebook that's just come out, starting um, with Cressy, which is, of course, part of the Hundred Years' War. And so I've just been reading the, this ebook over the past few days, and it's it gives you a fantastic overview of the Middle Ages and the Hundred Years' War, obviously, is a significant part of it. We were talking to Ian Mortimer, medieval historian, so their listeners will be fairly up to speed on what's going on in the Middle Ages, but we didn't really touch too much on the Hundred Years' War, but we did talk about how wonderful Edward III was. So, Gordon, should we kick off with the Hundred Years' War? Obviously, it's a hundred years, give or take, it's a bit more give than, than, than take. And could you just give an overview of the sort of state of play? Yeah, the, it all starts with the Norman invasion, really, because when they, the Normans came over and conquered England, uh, they, of course, still had lands in France. 
I mean, they had Normandy and they had they had other bits and pieces as well. And as time went on, those Norman kings of England acquired more and more land in France. And that was fine as long as the Duke of Normandy and the King of England were one and the same, which, of course, they were with William I. But as time went on, that was not the case. And very often uh, the Duke of Normandy and the King of England were actually loggerheads with each other. Uh, but more and more land was acquired. Um, Henry II was really the, the largest landowner or English landowner in France, if you like, um, having married Eleanor of Aquitaine and, and acquired Aquitaine to add to all the other territories that he had. Most of those were lost by King John, um, with the exception of uh, of Aquitaine. And the Critical time really was when Philip the Fair of France, known as Philip the Fair, because from the portraits that I've looked at, he was anything but fair. But whether the French were being sarcastic or not, we do not know. He died in 1314. Now, the point about him was that he had three sons. Each of them reigned after him. None of them had a legitimate heir. So when the last king died, Charles IV, in 1328, he was the last of the Capetian king. Now, the Capets had ruled France for something like 300 years. Um, so that was the end of that dynasty. But Philip the Fair also had a daughter, Isabella. And Isabella had married Edward II of England. And their son, the future Edward III, was therefore the closest male relative to the last Capetian king, because he was the grandson of one king, Philip the Fair, and a first cousin to uh, the one who just died, Charles. So so if you're going on primogenitor, which most, at this stage, most monarchies did, then Edward III, or, or Prince of Wales he was then, had the legitimate claim to the throne of France as of right. So the ostensible reason for this Hundred Years' War, which went on for more than a 100 years, and of course, it wasn't a hundred and something years of constant fighting. It was a whole series of campaigns punctuated by truces, uh, sometimes quite long. And one of them was lasted for 16 years. Um, but as the aim of England, and I say England because, of course, Scotland had not yet joined the Union. That didn't happen until 1707. The ostensible reason was to, was the, this claim to the throne of France as of right. Now, of course, the other reasons where that the magnates, the great men of England, wanted to get back the lands in France that had been lost uh, in the 1200s by, by King John. Uh, so, so that's what it's about. And that claim to the French throne, um, when Edward III put the, the fleur-de-lis of France onto his coat of arms, and the fleur-de-lis stayed on the royal coat of arms of England and later Britain right up until 1802, um, and the reason we gave it up as late as 1802 was that, of course, you will remember, was the Peace of Amiens, that, that breathing space during the uh, French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. Um, really just a breathing space. It just lasted rather just over a year. Uh, and England was prepared to recognize the French Republic. Now, if you recognize the French Republic, you have to give up your claim to the French throne. The fact that the French Republic only lasted for another two years before Napoleon became um, well, first consul, first of all, and then and then uh, emperor of France, um, we gave it up. And the fleur-de-lis came off the royal coat of arms and the horse of Hanover went on instead. Every time I meet a, 
a British politician, I say, how about resurrecting the claim to the throne of France? And they think I'm bonkers uh, because politicians basically don't don't read history. But that's what what it was all about. It was the claim to the French throne as of right, because Edward III was the closest male relative to the last king of France um, and getting back those lands that, that previously had belonged to to, to, either to English kings or to uh, to magnates. So that that's what it was about. Well, we have French listeners probably going to lose a few in this discussion. <laughs> and so the claim to the French throne then with was it I, I know we're going off on a slight tangent, but with Napoleon no longer the, the French Republic, it's under the rule of Napoleon. Did we revive our claim or it, it's not been revived at all to this day? No, it hasn't. I, hard though I try. Um, and I write letters and people think I'm mad and send them back. Um, I mean, it's, I don't seriously expect us to resurrect it, but it's quite fun uh, to, to every time a politician appears, I stick my hand up and say, what about the claims of the throne of France, which we gave up in 1802? Don't you think we should resurrect it? And I get a lot of amusement um, out, of, out of that because most of the people, the politicians I ask, have never heard of it and don't, don't know what it's about. Uh, and they certainly don't know what the piece of amends is or anything else. So, um, I mean, I think if if that claim had been upheld, it doesn't it doesn't, in my view, mean that King Charles would be the King of France today, because at some stage the crowns would have been split. The crown of France could have gone to a younger son, or indeed, the crown of England could have gone to a younger son. So, I think I think it would have split at some stage. Napoleon, of course, had had no claim to royal blood whatsoever he became the the emperor of france because he was the strongest and most competent uh man available uh and certainly much more competent than the ill-bred dribbling down their waistcoats uh bourbons that that he he briefly uh replaced but uh, that said france france has been the traditional enemy for for hundreds of years it, it has. It was so interesting reading in your book, you summarise how many years we've been at war um, with the French in our, in, in our history since the Norman invasion. It's something like 196 years. So statistically, one year in every five, we're at war with France. So it's not surprising that they don't like us. <laughs> I think it's definitely a love-hate relationship because I love France. Um, so do I. And the uh, French, yeah, do. I, I'm, I'm very much in favour of the long lunch, which uh, the French are still uh, participate in, which I think is a very good thing. Uh, I like their food, I like their climate, I like the people, um, I like the girls. I mean, you never see a scruffy French woman. They're tidy. They're, 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 you don't see great obese, horrible things wearing covered in tattoos. You know, they're lovely people. But inevitably, if you've got two nations with only a few miles of water separate them, both interested in building uh, colonies, both interested in, in global trade, um, both imperialistic, you inevitably will, will, will have a clash, will have clashes. Um, and that, of course, I mean, part of Brexit, I think, uh, was in, in cutting ourselves off from the French. Uh, you know, I, I, emotionally, nobody ever actually said that, but, um, yeah, it 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 is. Uh, it's still there, but and as you say, it's a love hate relationship. Uh, I mean, I have lots of French friends, uh, and I tease them, of course, and they tease me. Um, I have friends in the in the French army, um, and um, I don't think they mind when they look at the colours of British regiments with all those battle honours that are all 
all against the French. Um, they used to complain about Eurostar finishing up in Waterloo Station. Of course, it now <laughs> finishes in St. Pancras, which isn't quite so. That was very nice of us, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, but it, but uh, you know, there, there, there it is. Because we're talking today in this first part, we're going to talk about Cressy, mm. which is one of the three great victories during the Hundred Years' War, which, as schoolchildren in this country, we always remember those three battles, Cressy, Poitiers, Agincourt. But presumably there are some defeats in there, which we'll get to, I know. And we don't tend to remember those, do we? Well, we tend not to make a great thing about them. Uh, There were defeats, but they were fairly minor. I mean, the only really serious defeat was right at the end, uh, Castillon, which is um, east of Bordeaux. uh, And that really brought to an end um, English pretensions to, to, to ruling France. Um, and the reason for that really was that the French, having realised that they couldn't beat the English at their own game, they thought they, they went in for artillery and they really developed their artillery, gunpowder artillery. And it was the artillery that did for John Talbot at, at Castillon. Um, it's an interesting battle. Nobody ever goes there. But it's an interesting battlefield because the trenches in which the French put their guns are still there. The local farmers have turned them into an irrigation ditch. Uh, but they're still there. I mean, the battlefield hasn't changed a lot. And amazingly, the French have put up a memorial to Talbot. Talbot was killed. Uh, he was the English commander. Uh, and there's actually a memorial to him on, on the edge of the battlefield. And um, as I say, it's a little known battlefield. Nobody ever goes there, um, which is probably why it's pretty well unchanged. Um, but but that, that was certainly a defeat. There were other um, relatively minor ones. Um, a lot of nonsense is talked about Joan of Arc uh, commanding troops and lifting the siege of Orléans. Um, that just didn't happen. The siege of Orléans was lifted simply because when the Burgundians pushed off, uh, the English simply didn't have enough troops to to continue the siege, and they off they went. Uh, but the idea of this um, girl who wasn't a ignorant peasant, she was actually quite well educated, um, actually wearing armour and leading men in battle is nonsense. She was an inspiration for the French, certainly. And then they forgot all about her. And they didn't resurrect her until the 20s when they were, they'd come out of the First World War as victors, but with appalling casualties. I mean, the French in the First World War, population 7 million less than the United Kingdom of twice as many military deaths. I mean, it's an appalling. And it's worse than that because France was an aging population. So the proportion of men of military age was a smaller percentage of the population than it was in England. England had a young population in those days. Um, And they're looking for something and they resurrect. And Joan of Arc is then canonized in 1921 or two. I can't remember the exact date. Um, but um, the, the, you read all sorts of stuff about Joan of Arc, you know, and there's even a book that says she wasn't actually burnt. They burnt somebody else by mistake or deliberately instead and she was spirited away. That is that is total rubbish. Uh, I mean, we know she was definitely burned at Rouen. We know we, we've seen the reports, the contemporary reports and everything else. And she was double burned. When they burnt her, they then burnt the bones again and threw them into the Seine so that she couldn't, you know, her resting place couldn't be a... Uh, couldn't become a shrine. So, so there's a lot of going back to your first point. Yes, there are defeats, but they're, apart from Castillon, um, they're pretty minor, and they're minor because of what I call a revolution in military affairs, which, which we can we can talk about. 
Yes, we should. We should. Well, we'll and we'll. I think in the subsequent um, part, we'll talk a little bit more about Joan of Arc. Of course, on this side of the channel, she's a witch and was deservedly burned as such. Uh, on in France, viewed slightly differently. Well, she was burned. Sorry, she was burned as a heretic. A heretic, not a yeah. witch. A lot of people said she was a witch. I mean, she wasn't. She. The great question with Joan of Arc. We can talk about that in the next part if you like. Is um, these voices now? Nowadays, when people say they hear voices, we lock them up because we assume they're bonkers. Um, was she making it up? Uh, was she mentally disturbed? Uh, we simply don't know. And when you look at this, this transcript of her trial exists. And when you read that, you it is quite clear to me, having read it, uh, my French is not brilliant, but it's good enough to read the thing, um, she was not stupid. I mean, her she's very clever answering the questions. She's quite careful. Uh, so she's not stupid. Uh, she's not mad. I, I simply don't know the answer. Was she, was she bonkers? Well, I don't think she was. Uh, was she really hearing voices? Well, I don't believe you do get celestial voices. But, you know, uh, I, I could well be wrong. But, I mean, she's a fascinating character. Don't, no, no question. Mm. Well, if, hopefully we've got a few French listeners still listening. But um, when the war started... Obviously, there's an English claim on the throne. What is actually the sort of causus belli? Obviously, yes, I understand that it is a claim on the throne. But is there a is there a sort of what is the actual thing that's, that that starts uh, causes the army to invade France? It, it all comes down to the question of whether it, such possessions that remain, Aquitaine, for example, which is a huge area, um, you know, running from sort of north of Bordeaux all the way down to the uh, to the Pyrenees. Um, and as you know, Henry II acquired that by marrying Eleanor of Aquitaine. Now, Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, is one of the few few cases in Europe where a female inherits, and they, her father didn't have any sons, so she inherited the dukedom. Now, that was fairly unusual, um, although there was nothing legally to prevent it. Um, she had been married to the to the French king, uh, been married for uh, something like seven years, I think and had not produced any sons. Uh, so the French king divorced her. Uh, and something like, I mean, a few weeks later, uh, she married the future Henry II, who was then Duke of York. Um, and they cracked out lots of children. So, so clearly it was the French king's problem, not, not Eleanor's. Um, but so the great argument was, did Aquitaine belong to the English king? Absolutely. Or did it belong to the English king as a subject of the King of France? Now, this this was this was the thing, um, because obviously, as far as the English were concerned, it's going to do with the King of France. As far as the King of France was concerned, yes, you are the Duke of Aquitaine, you own Aquitaine, but you own it by my leave, if you like. And there's a question of paying homage, in other words. Um, and that really was was the, the tipping point, if you like. Um, We've mentioned the three great battles. Cressy, this book is, is about Cressy. Um, and they're the three battles that we all sort of uh, were taught about in, in school. The really critical battle isn't mentioned at all at school. <laughs> and that's, that's actually the Battle of Sluice, which happens in 1340. Um, and the reason I say that's critical is that that was the one time when, if, if the English had lost Sluice, or if the French had won it, which they should have done, 
I mean, essentially what happened was that Edward III embarked his army uh, and was sailing across to Flanders, and he was going to land in Flanders and carry on from there. French knew that was happening. Uh, they had massed a huge army um, at uh, Sluis, which was the port of Bruges. It's it's silted up now. Uh, there's not much of it left. Um, and a navy. And the navy, the idea was that an army would embark on the French navy, it would sail across, invade England, and that would be that. Now, this is long before Britannia ruled the waves. The real experts in naval warfare in the 1300s were the French. They had more ships, more manoeuvrable ships, more experience, uh, more sailors who, who, who knew the business. Uh, the English weren't a naval power at all, really, at this stage. And what the French could have done, and in my view should have done, would have been to put to sea, take on the, the, French, the English fleet. They would have beaten it, I think, undoubtedly. They would have either captured Edward III or killed him. Um, that, that was the only army England had. The French army would have gone on, landed in England, and we'd now be eating snails and not washing very often. Um, so, you know, th that was a really critical. But what happened was that the, again, you see this right throughout this the Hundred Year War period, divided command. The French uh, military army and navy in Sluis had um, two commanders, two French commanders, plus uh, a mercenary, a Genoan mercenary called Barbaros, Barbara, those are versions of his name. Now, he was a very experienced sailor. He knew exactly how to fight a naval battle. And he said to these two French commanders, look, we've got to put to sea. We are the experts. Put to sea, catch the English at sea and defeat them. Oh, we've got more ships, more manoeuvrable ships. We know what we're doing. The two commanders, who didn't really like each other, said, no, 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 no. What we'll do is we'll chain our ships across the harbour and that'll stop Edward coming in. Now, by doing that, they allowed the English to sail up, board the French ships and fight a land battle on ships. And the English were far better at fighting a land battle than the French. So that, that really was the critical battle of the Hundred Years' War. Um, if, if that had gone the other way, there wouldn't have been a Hundred Years' War. You know, the French, French would, have, would have won, and that would have been that. Um, so that was a critical battle, and, and nobody, we don't really learn about that. Um, no, we and, don't. No, and, and was Edward III in command of yes. actually, you know, making the decisions? Or yes, he yes, he was, and he was wounded, actually, uh, on the thigh, slightly. Uh, yeah. How old was he at this stage? He wasn't very old. He was in his 20s. I mean, he was young. They they grew up pretty quickly in those days. They they, they had to. Uh, what he did was he he waited. They sailed up. They could see the coast. They realised that if they went for them now, the sun's in the wrong position. So he wants to wait till he got the wind behind him, the sun behind him, which he does, and puts his own fleet in, in actually in three lines. Now the, the the rear line contained wives, stores, and that sort of stuff. The other two lines, basically, uh, they were they were what the, the English called cogs. They were broad beamed, fairly shallow, not terribly manoeuvrable, but very seaworthy. And what they did was they put um, crows' nests and forecastles on these merchant ships, which had been called up, uh, and they stuck archers in them. Uh, and of course, as soon as they got within range, then the archers, the arrow storm starts, uh, and that prevents 
the French crossbowmen from, from replying. And as soon as the ships hit, then grapnels up, up go the English, and it's good night, Josephine. You know, the, 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 it's a, ter- a terrible slaughter. They don't know how many French were killed. It was a hell of a lot. I mean, it was several thousand bodies were being washed up for, for weeks, weeks later. Um, English dead, hardly any. I mean, it was it was a couple hundred, nothing really. Um, so so that's that's a critical battle. I have actually written a little ebook on Sluice, but um, but it, it's, it's one that nobody really has ever heard of. Oh well, I'll definitely put a link in for that. So so that means that the Hundred Years' War starts with this major success, sort of four years in, isn't it? Yeah. I, well, it's it the actual claim. I mean, as soon as um, Charles IV dies in 1328, Isabella then registers the claim, not for herself. She's clever enough not to do that. Sometimes says because of the Salic law. Actually, Salic law wasn't applicable, but by French custom. Uh, it was male primogenitor. So she doesn't claim the throne for herself, but she claims it for her son. And she says that even if uh, the female line is excluded from sitting on the throne, that cannot apply to a male descendant from the female line, which, of course, Edward III was. Um, and he's 14 or 15 when she initially establishes that claim. Um, he doesn't actually make the claim uh, until... Uh, I think it was 1330, uh, in the marketplace in Ghent, when he's he's gone over initially uh, to try and build up some alliances. And most of the dukes and potentates that that said, yes, they would ally himself, in fact, buggered off. I mean, they, they, they didn't turn up. So that initial campaign was a failure. Um, so he had to scuttle back to England um, and try and persuade Parliament to produce more money for, for another campaign. Um, which then led to the Battle of Sluice. The next major expedition is the one that sets off and lands in Normandy uh, and and ends in the battle. The particular campaign ends in the in the Battle of uh, Cressy in, in 1346. We'll move to the the Cressy campaign. Then hmm. they land at Normandy, which yeah. is lost. It's, it's already been lost. It's in French hands, isn't it? So yeah, it's in French hands. Now a lot of people assumed. And I mean, both sides had a reasonable intelligence network. Uh, everybody assumed that uh, they would land in, in Aquitaine because that was friendly territory, as it were. And Edward didn't tell people where they were landing until he got everybody aboard on the ships. And he lands in Normandy. Now, Normandy then was French controlled, but uh, there were hardly any troops there. Uh, they were all up further up in, in, in the north. So he was able to land unopposed down there unload his horses and, and everything else. Uh, and then they start off uh, what was known as a chevaussee. And that was basically a, a, a raid, uh, burning, slaughtering, destroying crops, um, destroying castles and whatnot. And the aim of that wasn't just because they were being brutal and unpleasant. The aim of that was to tempt the French out. Edward III wanted a battle. Wanted a major battle um, because clearly he can't, he's not going to take the throne of France until he's beaten the French army. Um, so he wants to tempt them out. He also wants to make the point to the peasantry and the people, your king, you say, you, you say Philip of Valois is your king. Well, he can't protect you. Where is he? He can do nothing. Uh, I'm your rightful king. And, and so on. Uh, and he 
takes Caen relatively easily. Caen could have been uh, quite a difficult nut to crack, but the old, the medieval, the walls had, had collapsed and people had taken the stone away to make buildings and that sort of thing. So they were able to get in uh, relatively easily. And then they move on. And again, he wants a battle, but he wants it on his terms. And essentially what he wants is a defensive position, preferably on a hill, doesn't have to be, but preferably because then the enemy's got to attack uphill, where he can anchor both flanks so there's no risk of, of the enemy coming around behind him, and to allow the French to attack him when his revolutionary, and they were, tactics uh, will prevail, which, of course, is, is exactly what's going to happen. With him, though, is this brilliant... Prince of Wales, the Black Prince, who's hugely talented, isn't he, uh, Commander? Yeah. Now, how how much is the Black Prince, and is he known as the Black Prince by this stage? And then also, it'd be interesting to know how involved he is in the decisions as well. Well, he's only 16 at the time, but he's experienced chap. I mean, he's been around and he's technically in charge of one of the battles. Now, the term battle is confusing. Uh, It comes to the French bataille. Really, in our terms, it's a division. The army was divided into three divisions called battles, three battles, um, called the vanguard, the main body, and the rearguard, but they didn't necessarily operate. I mean, the rearguard, people called the rearguard could be in front, it could be behind, whatever. So that can be confusing. Um, the layout at Cressy of that ridge, and a lot of discussion, but I think that the, the obvious sensible layout is two of these divisions forward and one back, the reserve uh, being commanded, of course, by the king, by Edward III. And the Prince of Wales was, on, was nominally in command of the right-hand battle, the right-hand division. Um, there were two very experienced soldiers there uh, who would have... Um, <laughs> it's a bit like commanding Gurkhas when the Gurkhas will say, Saab, I'm sure you have thought about... <laughs> oh, cranky, yes. Hmm. And I think these two experienced soldiers will have been said to the Prince of Wales, actually, Your Highness, you know, you thought about doing this, doing that. Uh, so there were people there to advise him. But he was a very, very brave young man. And I think I think the business of the legend is that his battle was it was was in, in trouble. And a runner goes to the king and says, Sir, 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 Prince of Wales got a bit of a problem, reinforce him. And the king then says, Let the boy win his spurs. That has got to be rubbish. I mean, are we seriously think that the Prince of Wales, the heir to the throne, if he was under pressure, that the king wouldn't have reinforced him? Of course he would. That's what a reserve is for. You, you know, if you haven't got a reserve, you can't influence the battle. That's what a reserve for. So I think that's absolute total rubbish. I don't think that ever happened. It's like the, the tale of the blind king of Bohemia, who was John of Luxembourg. He wasn't blind. He'd lost one eye through disease. But you can see perfectly well the other eye. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't blind. Although the Prince of Wales did take his badge, his, the three feathers of the Prince of Wales, and the motto, Echdin, which, of course, is the badge of Princess of Wales to this day. And each Prince of Wales plays around with the design a bit. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the new Prince of Wales does with it. But it's still three feathers, and it's, it's 16. And that did come from John of Luxembourg. Interestingly, John of Luxembourg, who was killed, and his body was sent back, to Luxembourg, and he's buried there, and the tomb is there. Uh, and they've got the date of the battle completely wrong. Uh, and I wondered whether it was all to do with Gregorian calendar, Julian calendar, but but it's not. It's it's just a cock-up by the Masons or something. But anyway, he he's he's 
backbone, and he wasn't blind. So I think there's a lot of myths and legends surrounding this battle, and I think one's got to cut through it and find out, you know, as far as one possibly can, what actually happened. And and I'm a great believer in um, what the great Colonel Alfred Byrne, who was one of the first English serious military historians, and he produced a thing called the, the Theory of Inherent Military Probability. And what he said was, when you don't know what happened, but you can look at the ground, you know the assets available, what do you think would have happened? And, and any any military man, a reasonably militarily well-educated soldier or student of military history can work out what happened. And, and you're, it's amazing how often you're right when you, later on you discover some evidence that tells you what happened. So I think we've got to discard the myth and, and actually try and get down to what, what actually happened. And, and what certainly happened is that Edward found this pressy on Pontieu. He found this ridge, forest on one side, so they're not going to come through the forest. There's a sharp drop on the other side. They're not going to come up there. They've got to attack you frontally. He puts his men-at-arms, his armoured infantry, if you like, on foot, and that's critical. We can talk about that later. And the archers on either flank. So they're the, they're the missile weapon. These are the longbowmen. These are the longbowmen. Now, the longbow was England's weapon of mass destruction, if you like, consistently ignored by England's enemies, who are therefore consistently slaughtered by it. It's, the bow and arrow, of course, is as old as, as, as history. I mean, you, you see bows and arrows on cave paintings, which are thousands of years old, but these are short bows. Both sides had archers at Hastings, but again, the short bows, useful bit of kit, but not a, not a battle-winning weapon. When... The longbow, I think, and I don't know, but I think was probably developed by hunters rather than soldiers. And it probably took a bit of time to develop it. But the standard longbow by this time is the height of the man. So there wouldn't be many six feet. Um, you know, the average longbow, probably about five foot three, five foot four, something like that. Full of well over 100 pounds, effective range, 300 yards. And it was said it could go through a church door uh, at 100 yards, so that's that's two feet of oak. It would go through plate armour at relatively short ranges. There were a number of different heads for the arrows. There's a thing called a bodkin point, which was all like a needle. And the idea of that is it would go through um, chain mail, go through chain armour. But even if it, if something like that, if that hits you, you're on your horse. And even if it doesn't penetrate your armour, it's a hell of a thump. It's going to knock you off your horse. And if it hits your horse... I mean, a horse with a, an arrow up its bum, it's going gonna, it's gonna to whip round, dump you and piss off into the next county. You know, it's, so an archer was required and could not be enlisted, could not be a soldier, unless he could discharge 10 arrows a minute. Now, that is an incredible rate of fire. And when you think that there were, what was it, something like 4,000, 5,000 archers at Cressy, you know, 10 rounds a minute, that's a hell of a, that's a, hell of a lot of, arrows coming down and and we don't get that range and accuracy until breech loading rifles in the in the 1880s so why didn't we have archers in waterloo well the, the trouble with being an archer it's a bit like scottish pipers they they start learning when they're nine years old so you couldn't take an ordinary fit man and give him a longbow uh he just couldn't operate it so they started practicing with bows and arrows really from a very young age 
interestingly. And would they have been from a kind of, is it a sort of a military class or were they middle class people or was it peasants? They were generally peasants. Everyone was required. There there were various laws uh, really from time of Edward I, well, before Edward I actually onwards, uh, saying that everyone had to carry, uh, had to hold, had to have uh, a bow, X number of arrows and had to practice usually after church on a Sunday. And quite often, if you look at churches that were around then, medieval churches and, and the stone wall outside the church, you'll see bits worn away. And you think, well, why is that? And that was people sharpening their, the points of their arrows. So there was this um, requirement uh, for everybody to have weapons. Now, the nobility, the landed gentry, if you like, and upwards, they were the armoured infantry. Uh, they were they were the knights. Uh, the term knight now, it implies somebody who's been dubbed by the queen or king. Uh, then that was not necessarily the case. They were dubbed knights, but basically anybody who had a bit of land and some people working for him would be referred to as a, as a knight, although he hadn't been dubbed. The difference was that a dubbed knight got paid twice as much as an undubbed knight, despite the fact they both did the same job in the in the army. They, so, they were they were peasants, the, the longbowmen and, mainly, and knights. Yeah, mainly, mainly. Yeah, countrymen. Um, remember, it's a rural society then the drift to the towns doesn't really come until tudor times so it's 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 a it's a rural society uh, and they essentially are peasants farm workers farm laborers uh, and the rest and small shopkeepers difficult i mean i suppose today we'd say lower middle class working class the word working class really doesn't apply to the medieval period that really is something that really only applies to urban populations and, and we're not an urban society at this stage and so you mentioned you've described the sort of the battle, the way the army is being distributed by by Edward III, but and he's picked his battle battlefield really well. Why did the French then engage if it seems from what you described as almost impossible to win? You know, you've got this almost impregnable position on a hill with forest on one side and a drop on the other. Why did the French even engage? Because the French were still operating really a feudal system, unlike the English system, where they had this, what I call a revolution of military affairs, which is professional soldiers, technology as a force multiplier, and fighting on foot. Uh, and we can talk about the details of that later. The French army was feudal, um, largely mounted, mounted knights. Infantry was just a mobile fatigue party, if you like. They had some crossbowmen, mainly mercenaries from recruited from Italy, actually a lot of them. And they were at least three times as large as the English army. Some of the chronicles say they were five times as much, eight times as much. I think that's an exaggeration, but I think they're probably, I think it was at least three times. So they're chasing the English, got to do something. They can't just let the English wander all around the country, burning and destroying and, and slaughtering. They've got to do something. They started turning up in the area the evening before the 26th of August, the scouts, if you like, and then on the 26th, more and more French troops start arriving. And they can see the English there. The English are up on their on their hill. By sort of five o'clock in the evening, most of the army is there. Not all of it. There are more still to come. There's a uh, contingent from Amiens that hasn't yet turned up. And the king is there, the French king. And his advisors say, let's wait until the morning, uh, because then there's a, another contingent arriving. And then everybody's here. We can get ourselves sorted out and start the battle then. And the king agreed. But unfortunately for him, the 
mounted knights who'd arrived first and were down in the valley looking at the English up in the hill. And there's a lot of um, those in front said halt and those behind said forward. More and more, more and more people coming up. And eventually, uh, we think it was the Duke of Alsenal, or not absolutely quite sure. Uh, somebody says, come on, let's, let's, let's start the battle now. Come on, we're all here. And the king then gives in and realizes that he, he might as well agree because they're going to do it anyway. And bear in mind, these people, these, the French nobility, uh, there's no proper chain of command. Uh, whereas in the English army, there was every soldier knew who his NCO and his officer was. There was a proper chain of command. There wasn't in the French army. There were all sorts of nobility, all expected, uh, members of the royal family, all expected to be consulted, all this sort of business. So somebody said, well, send the, send the crossbowmen forward. So the poor old crossbowmen were sent forward. And the idea was that they would, tramp up the hill, and when they got in range, they would start discharging their bolts at the English. This would cause so much destruction in the English lines that the French cavalry could just gallop up and finish the job. And there were certain things that didn't work on that. First of all, the crossbow, although it had a longer range than the longbow, it was flat trajectory. You, you couldn't fire it at high angle the way you could with, with arrows. And something else happened was before they actually got in range, there was one of those sudden rainstorms that you get in France in the summer, and that soaked their bowstrings. So instead of the arrow, or the bolt, the, the, the quarrel going off 300 yards, 400 yards, it sort of went 10 yards and, and flopped. Now you could, and, and then, of course, the English archers opened up. Now you could say, well, hang on, the, the rain yeah. would have done the same thing for the English archers' bowstring. Yes, it works both ways. Yes. It took a hell of a long time to restring a, crossbow because it's much more complicated little wheels and all the rest of it whereas english archers kept um a spare bowstring usually under their helmet hence the expression under your hat so restringing a bow takes no time at all restringing a crossbow takes an awful long time also the crossbow and i said an archer was required to be able to loose 10 right 10 arrows a minute crossbow rate of fire would have been about two runs didn't they have a piece of kit that you couldn't do it by hand could you you had in a machine to wind your crossbow well those they were really used in um in sieges in castles behind you know, defensive positions um the sort of crossbow they were using you you braced it on your foot and you pulled the thing back and it clicked onto the pole and then mm. you put your quarrel in and you you fired it so the, the machine ones really were for were for static positions i see castles and that sort of thing but very low rate of fire Nothing uh, like the longbow. Nothing like the longbow. And of course, they'd, they'd failed. And the French, again, probably the Duke of Alton, or we don't really know, said, ah, come on, let's go. And they galloped over the poor old crossbowmen, who uh, they were they were decried as being cowards. Uh, they weren't. <laughs> they'd done what they could. And of course, as you know, a horse will do everything, can avoid stamping on something that's alive. I mean, you, you know, you look at Cheltenham and see the way the horses will twist almost in midair to avoid landing on a poor old jockey that's been dumped. But these crossbowmen were so closely packed together that they couldn't get a bonus. A lot of them have just galloped over. So up come the, the first lot of, of French armoured knights and the arrow storm starts and that's it. And there's another and another and another and they keep on coming up and of course, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Very brave these atta- these con- oh, yeah. continued attacks. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're noblemen. You know, they they uh, warfare is a matter for gentlemen, not for not for these peasants. And 
I mean, looking to the future, one of the questions people always ask me is, well, why didn't the French uh, realize why they were being beaten? Because after the first few battles, they must have realized that, that you know, the, the, the longbow was the problem. Uh, why didn't they copy copy it? Why didn't they do uh, start training archers? And there's two reasons. One reason is I've already mentioned it took it takes a long time to train an archer. But the other reason is because of French society. Now, English society, believe it or not, was was mobile. There are lots of cases during this period of chaps who start off as private soldiers, as archers, and they do rather well, and they become a, a vintenar, a commander of 20, a platoon commander, if you like. And they do well again, and they become a sentinel, company commander, if you like. Uh, and some of them end up as army commanders, knighted, ennobled, uh, and there's a lot of that. That's not the case in, in France. Uh, in England, essentially, the populace were reasonably happy with the nobility and the monarchy and the government. Uh, I mean, you've got, you got cases, you know, what Tyler people got later on, but but essentially it was a fairly stable society. The French daren't, they felt, arm the lower orders. They felt that if they did, the lower orders would turn on them, which, of course, they did at one stage. The, the, the Jacquerie uh, were the most appalling cases of, of the peasantry turning on their, their masters um, in France. And they simply... They couldn't do it. Uh, so, so it's partly the fact warfare is for gentlemen, not for these bloody people. Secondly, we, we daren't arm the lower orders. So, so that's why they never actually really, never really, they knew, I mean, there were enough sensible French soldiers to realise why they were being consistently beaten. But the, the state of their society simply didn't allow them to do anything about it, which is why 100 years later, they're actually, they've actually developed artillery, which the English tended to to. Um, not to worry about too much. You mentioned just before we started recording how there is a lot of relevance to the the tactics or the the, the strategy employed in this campaign that is relevant to the British Army today. Is is how is that? That doesn't make sense to me. Surely we've got these fancy new tanks. Not many of them, granted, but we've got these fancy new tanks that can sort of fire around corners. How is that close to a longbowman? Right. There has been a revolution in military affairs. Now, that's a term that's used, it's used far too often, usually wrongly. If we look at what happened when they, when the Normans arrived in England and they brought with them their own military system and that was blended with the Anglo-Saxon system, that meant that the king owned all the land, which he distributed to his great men, who in turn owed him military service. And when the king required, they had to turn up usually for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days, they went home. And they were backed up by the the Anglo-Saxons called the Ferd, in other words, a a militia, which was half-trained. You know, when the king went to war, the peasant dropped his hoe and picked up a spear or whatever and went to war. And this region, this this worked all right for minor dynastic squabbles or border raids from Wales or whatever. It didn't work when the king wanted to proceed somewhere or when he wanted to send expeditions abroad, which which English kings more and more wanted to do. So really starting in the time of, of as far back as Edward I was the idea of having what was called knights for pay. In other words, they started to pay people. Now, the old system where the knights turned up for 40 days, the militia again turned up for 40 days. You couldn't call them up during the planting season. You had to let them go before the harvest season. So it didn't work. But if you pay people, then they go where you want them to go. They will 
use the weapons that you want them to use and they will use the tactics that you want them to use. So you're starting to get towards professional army. So professionalism, that, that's the first leg of this revolution in military affairs that I talk about. The second leg of this revolution is using technology as a false multiplier. Now, the English knew that their population was so much less. Population of France during this period, about 16 million. Population of England, three, maybe four. And of course, much reduced after Black Death. So you need technology to make up for your shortage of numbers. And technology in this case was the longbow. Uh, and the third leg of this revolution in military affairs is the use of infantry. Now, up to, to then, uh, the mounted man was the king of the battlefield. He could gallop through any infantry who were made up of of increasingly reluctant peasants, not very well armed, not properly disciplined, not properly equipped. And it, there were a number of battles, not English battles, but in Flanders, where the commanders had started to discipline their infantry, put them on foot, and they'd seen off mounted knights. And then, of course, Bannockburn in the time of Edward II was really the wake-up call for the English. Is, where, that, is it a bit like in um, the film Braveheart, where we won't go into the <laughs> historical inaccuracies that are there, but that when they they, they do organise the infantry yeah, to resist them. That's the whole point. And this was the wake-up call. And as you know, uh, the English uh, were completely defeated. Edward II, to be fair, he wanted to stay, but his advisor said, no, <laughs> off we go. And that was really the wake-up call for the English. As I say, there had been some indications before that. And the wake-up call for the English was, hang on, disciplined, properly trained infantry can see off any amount of cavalry, however well-bred the cavalry might be. Uh, and that's the third leg. So English armies move on horseback. And while on this on the Cressy expedition, not everybody was on a horse, although as they capture more and more horses as time goes on, more and more of them are mounted, by the time, say, of Henry V, everybody's mounted. So you move on horseback. But you get off your horse and you fight on foot. So the infantry, which is the knights, the men at arms, they are there in the front. Three ranks or four ranks, it depends how many you've got and how big the frontage to be covered is. Um, archers on the flanks, find a nice bit of ground, anchor your flanks, and actually no, nobody can take you on. They, they, just, they just can't. Now, why is that relevant today? Right, professionalism. The British Army, really since the time of Edward I, if you like, has been moving towards professionalism. By the time we get to Henry V, it is a professional army. They wear a uniform. They're subject to a form of military law. Uh, there's a proper chain of command. There are ranks uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, now, nearly everybody else uh, have conscript armies. Uh, the British armies, the, the, both sides in the English Civil War tried conscription briefly. It didn't work. Stopped doing it. In the First World War, we did conscript from 1916, which was as much a manpower control mechanism as anything else. And we got rid of it as soon as we possibly could. Our Second World War, we start conscripting at the beginning of the war. It actually goes on up until 1959. But nobody ever liked it. We got rid of it in, in 1959. And, that, and we were the only army of any of the players that was entirely professional from 1959 onwards. We've gone back to a professional army. The French, the Germans, the Russians, the Americans, everybody, conscript army. We weren't professional. Using technology as a false multiplier. In the Hundred Years' War, it was the longbow. In the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, it was the Baker rifle. In the First World War, it was the tank. Now, the tank was not 
a battle-winning weapon in the First World War, but but the 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 thinking behind it was the thinking behind it was you're using technology to make up for lack of numbers or, or to save casualties. In the Second World War, it's probably artillery, really. So those three three things: professionalism, technology as a force multiplier, and tactics are the things which are still relevant today. I mean, we we today are a professional army, and we we couldn't really imagine being being anything else. And we use technology as a force multiplier. I mean, today it's it's part of the tank but it's drones it's cyber warfare and and all the rest of it so that's why i say it's relevant to today at the end of the battle at cressy the numbers on both sides of it's a huge disparity in casualties isn't it mm. um the english casualties there were there are two officers uh who are named and something like 200 others probably archers because they didn't have the protection that they the government had or the, the men at arms had the men at arms by this stage, yes, they are in mainly plate armor. Now we the English were later than the French to adopt plate armor. A lot of the English were still in chain mail, which was not as expensive as plate armor. Of course, you a knight could be ransomed. So you didn't slaughter knights if you captured one, he's your pension. And whereas archers, of course, weren't ransomed because they had nothing to pay a ransom with. So they were they were more likely to be killed than the than the men at arms. But it was it was minuscule, tiny. French casualties, 2,000 dead, probably, something like that. I mean, it's difficult to find exact numbers. The king legged it, but it didn't bring an end to the war. Uh, you know, the war's, war's going to go on. The English sorted themselves out and headed on. And the next stage, of course, was to take Calais, which then remained English until Mary Tudor's time, and then back to England. And, of course, then you've got Black Death arrives. Ah, oh, so... Is that the reason why Edward III wasn't able to claim the throne after Cressy? Uh, no, it was simply the French weren't prepared to give in. You know, they, they thought they could they could keep going. There are a number of occasions during the war where the French say, "Yep, we'll we'll let you have the throne," but but then they renege. So no, it's nothing to do with the Black Death. But the Black Death does put a halt to to really campaigning on on both sides. It has a much worse effect in France than it does in England. Uh, and the reason for that is that in England, it is a unified nation and the administration works. In France, we talk about France, but it, the area directly under the control of the King of France is really the Ile de France, the sort of area around Paris. The rest is all in duchies who own fealty to the King of France. And if you've got a strong and rich king, then, yep, he can control those duchies. But if the king is weak or poor, uh, then the duchies can pretty well do what they like so and there's a big chunk is burgundy as well isn't it yeah burgundy was was allied allied to england for a lot of the a lot long period of the war something else of course that's that's historically that england uh, has tended to fight its wars or britain's tended to fight our wars with allies major, major wars uh, if you look at the napoleonic wars uh, prussia austria russia i mean they all sort of went in and out but the generally an allied second uh, first world war was france uh, and russia allied and america america second world war ussr america and subsequently i mean the gulf war in alliance with, with america afghanistan in alliance initially with america and then with nato <clears throat> and that, that's what we do and and again if you look at the hundred years war the huge disparity in population meant that that we we needed allies and, and Burgundy, which is a big, important duchy, <clears throat> was our ally for, for long, 
long period. Wonderful stuff, Gordon. So Cressy, truly great victory. We've got another couple we're going to talk about when the books are out. That's Poitiers and Agincourt, which is probably the most famous of all. So I'm very much looking forward to talking, continuing the discussion on the Hundred Years of War. What happens leading up to Poitiers? We get more of the Black Prince and then Agincourt, Henry V and all that. Yep. Gordon, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Not at all. It's always good to talk to you, Oliver. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, please recommend this pod to anyone you think would be interested. This pod grows thanks to you, the listeners. So I want to thank those that have shared already. Coming up, Napoleon's invasion of Russia, top 10 Tudor myths, and the film club continues with the financial crisis double bill of the big short and margin call. Until then, thank you and good night. (laughs) 